My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is Day 70, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Numbers 21, Deuteronomy 21 and 22, and Psalm 102. The Bible contains adult themes that may not be suitable for children. Parental discretion is advised, particularly in this reading. Numbers 21. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns. So the place was named Hormah. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. Then they set out from Oboth and camped in Lai-Abarim, in the wilderness that faces Moab toward the sunrise. From there, they moved on and camped in the Zered Valley. They set out from there and camped along the Ornon, which is in the wilderness extending into Amorite territory. The Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. That is why the book of the Wars of the Lord says... Zahab in Sufa and the ravines, the Arnon and the slopes of the ravines that lead to the settlement of Ar and lie along the border of Moab. From there, they continue on to Beer, the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing about it and about the well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the people sank, the nobles with the scepters and staffs. Then they went from the wilderness to Matena, from the Matena to Nahalil, from Nahalil to Bamath, and from Bamath to the valley in Moab, where the top of Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. Israel sent messengers to say to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, let us pass through your country. We will not turn aside into any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway until we have passed through your territory." But Sihon would not let Israel pass through his territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the wilderness against Israel. When he reached Jahaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, but only as far as the Ammonites, because their border was fortified. 
Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken from him all his land as far as the Arnon. That is why the poets say, Come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sihon's city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, a blaze from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, Moab! You are destroyed, people of Chemosh. He has given up his sons as fugitives and his daughters as captives to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have overthrown them. Heshbon's dominion has been destroyed all the way to Dibon. We have demolished them as far as Nophah, which extends to Madiba. So Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. After Moses had sent spies to Jezair, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road towards Bashan, and Og king of Bashan and his whole army marched out to meet them in the battle of Adria. The Lord said to Moses, Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land. Deuteronomy 21 If someone is found slain, lying in a field in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who the killer was, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns. Then the elders of the town nearest the body shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has never worn a yoke and lead it down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted and where there is a flowing stream. There in the valley they are to break the heifer's neck." The Levitical priest shall step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessing in the name of the Lord, and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then all the leaders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer, whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Accept this atonement for your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed, Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent person. Then the bloodshed will be atoned for, and you will have purged from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood, since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as a wife, bring her into your home, and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife." If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. If a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the sons of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. 
then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate that land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. If you see your fellow Israelites ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to its owner. If they do not live near you or if you do not know who owns it, take it home with you and keep it until they come looking for it. Then give it back. Do the same if you find their donkey or cloak or anything else they have lost. Do not ignore it. If you see your fellow Israelite donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help the owner get it to its feet. A woman must not wear men's clothes nor a man wear women's clothing for the Lord your God to test anyone who does this. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go, so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Do not plant two kinds of seeds in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops, your plants, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoke together. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Make tassels on the four corners of the cloak you wear. If a man takes a wife after sleeping with her, dislikes her, and slanders her and gives her a bad name, saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity, then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town's elder at the gate proof that she was a virgin. Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin, but here's the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the young woman's father, because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledges is to be married and he sleeps with her. You shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife, you must purge the evil from among you. But if out in the country, a man happens to meet a young woman pledged to be married and rapes her. Only the man who has done this shall die. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. This case is like that of someone who attacks and murders a neighbor. For the man found the young woman out in the country, and though he, the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to rescue her. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. A man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me. When I am in distress, turn your ear to me. 
When I call, answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. In my distress, I groan aloud and am reduced to skin and bones. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long, my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. For I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears because of your great wrath, for you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadows. I wither away like grass. But you, Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come, for her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity." The nation will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the people and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like the clothing will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. Okay, so the title for this commentary is going to be Seizing Leads to Death and Seducing Leads to Cost and Commitment. This is a really hard commentary, and bear with me. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. Here we go. Okay, so this is a hard subject to read and reflect on. A couple of points of clarity that offer context to me, anyway, include, number one, the Bible was written for us and not to us. So we have to carefully think about the context and what was trying to be said at that time to better understand what God is doing and revealing. And these speeches by Moses are to the Israelites living in an ancient Near Eastern culture with, you know, other cultures next to them like the Babylonians and the Assyrians and things like that. Two, God created us to be culture makers and God is not condoning or condemning the entirety of the culture here. Instead, God is incarnating, making his will and ways more clear. I love that. Dr. Sandra Richter really gave, gave clarity on that. In this story, the meaning of his commandment or word about not committing adultery is referencing Exodus 20, 13, and 14, and it's being nuanced. Number three, sociocultural constructs such as patriarchy, matriarchy, and egalitarianism are devices from human attempts at organization. There is so much to say about each of these, but the long story short, none of them seem to emulate the Genesis 1 where mankind is made in God's image with a portion of power and authority given to the males and females to rule, fill, and subdue, or Genesis 2, this one flesh and a desired subordinate role to God until Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve, even Adam, choose the tree of knowledge to be their own gods essentially and authors of their own sense of morality. 
constructing social structures, often with little to no submission to God's characterizations of order in a family and creation. So what does this mean? This means that the rest of scripture will be God coming to rescue people who have made their own social structures that have been largely affected by alienation and dislocation. So what will God do? Seek to restore and redeem the social structure, whatever it is. So for me, the question is less about which of these three dominant social structures designed by humans is the best because that is a matter of perspective. And when being objective, all of them fall short of what God ordered in Genesis 1 and 2. And what God seems to be editing throughout scripture towards a redeemed and fully restored kingdom with no end. So we're looking for the edits to understand more about his will and ways. I think the better question is more about which social structure do you find yourself in, in terms of culture, subculture, and family, and how does it compare with scripture? What steps can we make in our families and as citizens to restore and redeem that which is alienated and dislocated towards his will and ways as it's being made evident to us as we read scripture and stories like this one? So in Deuteronomy 21, we see the insertion of a law that was countercultural, absolutely, to the time, because captive women from war in the ancient Near Eastern world of Babylon and Assyria had no rights or protection, and their rape, torture, and murder were not even considered a crime. I put in an article in the show notes to illustrate this. Yet, here we are reading God's edit for Israel. This will not be for you. Dr. Rabbi Raznik describes how this law was doing three things. First, it was protecting the non-Israelite captive women from being raped. It protected them, her, from being re-enslaved after marriage. And it was discouraging the marriage of the Israelites to captive foreign women with this cooling period and this requirement for them to, for example, shave their heads. These rules were unprecedented at the time. In the ancient Near Eastern Israelite world, patriarchy meant that the male descendants, particularly the firstborn male, were of critical sociocultural and economic importance, with all portions of power and authority falling on them. Note, God very frequently did not choose the firstborn male, which I think evokes this sense that God did not create, nor is he confined to the social structures of humans. In a patrilinear social structure, marriage was treated as a socioeconomic way to accumulate the best male heirs to elevate the family to the strongest sociocultural and economic position. This means a woman's value in marriage and society was mostly based on factors like her family's name, socioeconomic station, virginity, and the ability to produce male heirs. Therefore, virginity and fidelity were of critical importance for their power structure. There weren't paternity tests, and one note on the concept of virginity, there is an objective reality of a man and a woman having sex for the first time. But the desire of humans to anatomically prove it, socially or scientifically, has been nothing short of suspect, with mostly pseudoscientific methods. In this story, we read about evidence in the form of blood on a sheet to prove a woman's virginity. This was not only a common method of proving virginity in the ancient world, some studies show in parts of the Middle East today this is still common. The problem with this is layers of misunderstanding regarding the female body. I'll just name a few popular misconceptions. One, that a woman has a piece of tissue, often referred to as the hymen that covers the opening to her uterus. I mean, this can't be true 
if a woman is menstruating, the blood from her uterus monthly then would leave her body through this opening. The skin is in different shapes, but most are in a donut configuration with at least one central perforation, if not more, with different variances of thickness in each woman. So if a woman is not anxious, relaxed, and properly aroused, sex for the first time is actually not likely to result in much, if any, bleeding from this tissue. Every study I've seen reports show that less than half of women bleed the first time they have sexual intercourse. The World Health Organization, which is part of the United Nation, has called a ban on virginity testing in 2018. In some parts of the world, this is still practiced. While virginity and the concept of being one another's first sexual partner is a value, and there is objective reality, an objective truth to this, the matter of proving it through a woman's blood is problematic. What it might actually encourage is a woman to be more anxious and a man to take a woman in a way that results in lacerations when she's not relaxed or aroused. This, regardless of virginity, is more likely to result in blood. So again, the question is not whether virginity and infidelity have significance, but we know from Jesus' response to the Jewish elders who brought the adulterous woman before him at the end of John 9 and beginning of John 8 that Jesus did not condemn her, but tells her to go and sin no more. And from the book of Hosea, where God had the prophet Hosea marry the prostitute Gomar and pursue her and rescue time and again, that this is a representation of the people of Israel and us. Most of us have struggled with a heart that drifts, centering ourselves on things that we worship that aren't him. It's a form of infidelity and idolatry. There is a cost. There is a need for redemption. In the stories we've read thus far in scripture, God wants our fidelity. In the New Testament, the people of God are often referred to as the bride. Yet we see this pattern of infidelity where the people drift and worship other gods. They forget and wish to be back in a relationship with the adversary, for example, under Pharaoh in Egypt. There seems to be this reflective relationship between God and his people and a man and a woman in marriage. Yet, for humans, it, it becomes often about earthly power and preservation of their tribe. But fidelity for God is about living into the purpose He designed us for, to take the portion of power and authority He gave us, yield it back to Him and each other for the purpose of ruling, filling, subduing, working, caring, protecting, and flourishing. Therefore, it's important to distinguish the difference between God's ordered design for fidelity and often the dislocated purposes of humans. One of Dr. Sandra Richter's papers highlights some common misconceptions of rape, one being that it's a stranger or a mentally deranged man, when often it's done by men that women know and they are not mentally ill, per se, but rather it's the dark dislocation of a heart from what God ordered. Rape in our world focuses on individual human rights violations, whereas in the ancient Near Eastern world, rape was more about a violation of this interdependent kinship of the woman and her family, either her betrothed or her father's household. I think I've said this before, but our Western individual culture has us thinking the world is in a specific or different way from a collectivist culture perspective, which I think makes topics like this harder for us to understand. What was being said in context? 
In addition, our Western culture has been incredibly hypersexualized, and sometimes I think it has us looking for justifications of sex in Scripture. I recognize that most Christians place sex inside of the context of marriage, which I think Scripture supports, hopefully, obviously. But I think Christians may have inadvertently made the point of marriage sex, which I don't think Scripture supports. For example, I see three marriages as the ones God most directly or overtly influenced in the order of influence. I'll share them with you. Mary and Joseph, Jesus Christ in the church, and Adam and Eve. Not to say that he's not involved in many others, but these seem to be really clear examples of one he talks about and illustrates. I have so much to say about this. I'll try to highlight a couple of relevant things here. First, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden by God, but it was Adam who spoke vows before God to Eve, and thusly they became one flesh, and their marriage and first sex, and Eve gave God the glory for her progeny. Mary and Joseph may or may not have had sex after the birth of Jesus. That's a whole separate biblical discussion. Regardless, their marriage was also about purpose in the kingdom of God, and they raised at least one child, Jesus, whom Joseph adopted. He was not his progeny in the standard way. Then, Christ in the church, obviously, there is no sex, and the focus is on the close, intimate relationship and God's purposeful design for the kingdom of God. Fidelity was a part of all three of these marriages, but sex was not. God's purpose was a part of all three of these marriages, but socioeconomic affluence was not the purpose of any of them. Like singleness, the point of marriage seems to be missional and purpose-driven for the kingdom of God, but in a unique way. So sex and socioeconomic affluence may be an outcome or benefit of some marriages, but it is not the point of a marriage. Remember how I mentioned that the purpose of business is not profit, but rather profit was an outcome of doing business well. Okay, zooming in, Dr. Sandra Richter describes Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 19 as written in a chiasm, which was a common rhetorical tool biblical authors used to describe a situation and then mirror or inverse relationship of the same situation in a different way. So Deuteronomy 22, verse 13 to 22 is about adultery in the context of betrothed or married women. And Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 29 is about single women. In this story, five cases are given. The first case, verses 13 to 22, a new husband dislikes and slanders his new wife, calling her chastity and fidelity into question. Here's the thing. Without this law, his word as head of the household was law, and it would also have an impact on her family. He could dislike her and slander her because he just doesn't like her. Maybe he doesn't like her father. Maybe he doesn't like his father, and he's mad about the arranged marriage. In any case, on a whim, he could divorce her and shame her and her family. God is editing this, and not just in the way the culture practiced with virginity testing. Remember what I said about that. God knew that was faulty business. Plus, consider for just a second how jaded this whole situation must be to accuse your new wife in a way to shame her into exile and possibly have her killed. In verse 20, many scholars read, if the charge is true, to mean, like we read in the past chapters, that more than one witness must support this accusation. Then the conjunction and is given to also include, almost like it's secondary, this virginity testing proof. If the investigation shows his accusations are false, a consequence is given to him. Some say it's not only the hundred shekels, which is about five times the cost of a slave or the cost to redeem two men, but the punishment may have also been lashes, a form of public shaming. 
The fact that his reputation and socioeconomics were on the line was altogether new, and that he was also accountable to elders and a proper investigation, new. It may seem wild, but God is actually offering protection for women in a way that was unprecedented at this time. So, truth, fidelity, and justice are all important. Therefore, if there are witnesses to attest to her promiscuity and there is proof, she is to be stoned at the door to her father's house, which shames him too. There is an interdependence, connection of consequences for so many in this scenario. Also note, this is the very situation that Mary and Joseph found themselves in in the book of Matthew. And while Mary was in no way promiscuous, she was pregnant with Jesus, and Joseph initially chose to quietly divorce her, which is to end their betrothal, without a public stoning. So it's possible for a husband to choose another way. To qualify, though, Joseph stays with Mary because an angel of the Lord came to him. But that's for another story. The point is, this story is about some kind of hurting slash hateful husband who wants to hurt his bride, her family, or in some twisted way, his own and God is putting in checks and balances to safeguard against the exploitation of innocent and the more vulnerable party. But it is also honoring that a vetted promiscuous wife who deceived a husband and father is also held accountable. Note, there is no story of a husband making these claims of a wife and her being stoned for this reason in the Bible. The second and third case or story is about something I would consider more of a classic case of adultery, where a man is having a consensual affair with a married or betrothed woman, and in this case, they are both to be stoned. Yet, I also want to point to the word found here, which seems to be the need for more than one witness to have firsthand observation of this accusation and due process before God, a priest and a judge or elders seems to be the inferred due process being established in this community. So the two-sided message is that adultery is wrong and the punishment is death, but also in practice, this cannot be arbitrarily used to kill people we do not like, and there is no opportunity to kill just the man or just the woman. In this case, it would be both of them. The fourth case is about a man seizing or raping a woman who is betrothed to another man. It was so meaningful to read how the focus in this case was on her innocence until proven guilty instead of her assumed guilt with the responsibility to prove innocence, and he was guilty in this case, so capital punishment was the result for the man. In the fifth case, the NIV uses the word rape here, but Dr. Richter describes how the Hebrew word pata or piel means to persuade, to tempt, to allure, and most biblical scholars disagree that it means rape. Dr. Richter is a well-known biblical scholar who is a professor at Westmont and did her dissertation on Deuteronomy. Also consider, the fourth case, which was about rape, resulted in the man's execution. It really wouldn't make sense for the next story to suggest a woman marry her rapist. So Dr. Richter is clarifying something very important here, in my opinion. This case is about a man tempting an unmarried woman into sex before marriage. That's what makes it a fifth and distinctive case. A seduction in that culture would bring shame on her and her family, making it harder for her to marry. And therefore, the consequence is the man is required to pay the family a higher mohar, bride price or gift, 50 shekels, and to marry her. Dr. Richter also points back to Exodus 22, verse 15 to 16, where the bride's father has a right to refuse, and according to the halakha from Taige's commentary, the bride can refuse as well. 
another check and balance, and yet the man is being held responsible for the seduction and is still required to pay the higher mohar bride gift or price, even if the father or her refused to marry. What's very important is that this story is not saying that a woman must marry her rapist. I really can't stress this enough. Dr. Richter describes how Israel is being called by God to distinguish themselves from other Mesopotamian cultures around them, where avenging honor is more important than purging evil. In Mesopotamia at the time, and in some cultures still today, a man that rapes a woman is expected to marry her to purge her alleged shame brought on her family, and revenge rape is also a practice. What Moses is saying to Israel here is Deuteronomy is not, in all capitals, that. Nowhere in Deuteronomy does it say that a woman is to marry her rapist or that revenge rape is allowed. In fact, Dr. Richter points out Deuteronomic law executes the rapist. See how God is editing the cultural practice in this way. So much to reflect on. Exile and death are the outcome of sin, evil, and worshiping false gods. Remember, God is just and this cannot be tolerated. At the same time, remember, God is merciful and he seeks to rescue us from exile with atonement, paying the cost of our sin, redeeming us, and wants to restore us. What is our response going to be to God's way, God's will, God's edits on our hearts and our culture? Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.